You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is a psychology professor from Northeastern University who did an amazing TEDx talk called The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong that is one of the most popular talks of all time with 9 million views to date. And her name is Amy Morin. In addition to being a psych professor, she's a licensed clinical social worker, a psychotherapist, and has written three best-selling books translated into 33 languages. That's like at least 10 more languages than all the Bulletproof stuff has been translated into. So she's a very successful author. And her books are all called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And she's joining the show today to talk about, well, 13 things you don't want to do because if you listen to Bulletproof Radio, you care about being mentally strong, among others. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Through things. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. How did it feel when The Guardian called you the self-help guru of the moment? <laughs> it was a really surreal time, I think, to look <laughs> and think, wow, here's this newspaper on the other side of the pond over there talking about me, number one, and number two, to call me the self-help guru of the moment. It was really interesting. <laughs> It's pretty odd. Uh, last month, uh, Men's Health ran a major piece on me where I had the, well, I guess it wasn't embarrassing, but it felt embarrassing at the time moment of taking my shirt off for a Men's Health magazine as a former 300 pound guy. And they called me, I think they called the article the guru's dilemma. So like being labeled a guru is kind of like, ew. Right, right. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, like if you're sharing good advice, <laughs> you're at least a source of knowledge, but who needs guruship? Right. Uh, that was my response to, I think, was, ooh, guru. I didn't really want to be called a guru of anything, but to be called the self-help guru, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it, it's odd. And I guess there's people who really are like, oh, I wanted to be a guru, but it's like, I just wanted to help. Right. <laughs> it's a different animal. All right. Before we get into the uh, the way you got into this you know, 13 things that mentally strong people don't do list, I want to know 
why are you a psychology professor? Because most psychologists I know, and I have many who are dear friends, most of them kind of had crap childhoods or they have some reason they wanted to study psychology. <laughs> like they were called to it for a reason. Are you one of those? Uh, no. So I, w- I was a pre-med major and I uh, thought, oh, I'm going to help people, you know, talk about their bodies and I'm going to fix problems. And it was actually my first day of college. We were dissecting cats and everybody else in the room was super excited and I wasn't. And it dawned on me, I don't actually want to be a doctor. I just want to, I like the idea of being a doctor. So I called my sister and said, okay, quick, I need a new major. I don't want to do this tomorrow. <laughs> what do you think? And she was a psychology major. And she said, I was like, I think I'll just do psychology as well. And I'll change it later on. And she said, why don't you, why don't you go with social work at least? Cause then you'll, you can have a social work license when you're done. And I thought, all right, that sounds good. So I switched it fully intending that down the road, I would switch to something else. But then I sort of fell in love with it. If you heard some cool sounds in the background there, Amy actually lives on a boat, which is a lot of people's, well, it's one of the 13 things mentally strong people do do, apparently. Uh, But anyway, you you may hear the cool boat sounds in the background. Uh, This would be the second podcast I've ever recorded on a boat, so there you go. Cool. (laughs) So you decided you didn't want to be a doctor. Well, the good news is that uh, maybe you dodged a bullet. Uh, My wife is a doctor, and having dissected her share of cats and human cadavers, she developed a sensitivity to formaldehyde, which is what they used to pickle them all. And Mm -hmm. that's, it's something that even to this day, she notices formaldehyde areas like, oh, headache. So maybe you avoided that. Yeah, I think, I think it was probably good. I figured out early on that was not the career for me. (laughs) All right. Following your path. That's one of the the rules and game changers and doing, doing what you're here to do, not what you're supposed to do is, is uh, something that's powerful. All right. So you got there because it wasn't med. All right. I get you. Now, a lot of people don't frame what they do in terms of here's what not to do. And I, I'm really attracted to your work because the number one thing in the how to become bulletproof is stop doing the things that make you weak. Yeah. <laughs> because it's really easy to go lift more stuff, but maybe lifting more stuff isn't the highest return on investment. How did you how did you frame your work and just your learnings in this weird negative way, as in was what not to do? Well, so I was working as a psychotherapist. It's early on in my career, and they really taught me build on people's strengths, find out what people are doing well, and encourage them to keep doing that. And so I did at first, and at some point along the way, though, I thought, you know, I'm doing people a disservice if I wanted to become physically strong, and I was going to see a trainer, and they said, go lift weights, great, but if they didn't tell me to quit eating so many donuts, I wouldn't see the results that I wanted. I'd rather give up eating all those donuts than spend another hour on the treadmill. And it's sort of my personal journey uh, led me in this interest in mental strength on a deeper level. Shortly after I became a therapist, my mom passed away suddenly. And I thought, okay, now it's not just about teaching other people how to be mentally strong. I really want to know for my for my own purposes, how come some people go through tough times and they're sort of reduced by it, but other people go through hard times and and they find strength in it and they come out on the other side stronger than ever. So I started studying the people in my therapy office with this new sense of passion. And I started looking at them and I realized that people who were stronger than others, there were certain things that they just didn't do. So that no matter what they went through, no matter what sort of practices they were doing, as long as they didn't do certain things, they came out mentally stronger. And in my personal journey, I went through all sorts of more stuff in in the coming years. My husband passed away when he and I were both 26. He passed away unexpectedly. 
And through my grief, really wanted to know, how do I not do these certain things that I've identified in my therapy office? How do I make sure I don't stay stuck? And it took years to get better, to start to feel like, okay, there's light on the other side. But uh, after, it was about four years later, I got remarried and life was starting to finally look good. And then my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I thought, oh, now I'm going to lose another loved one. I lost my mother. I lost my husband. Now I'm going to lose my father-in-law. And so I wrote myself this list of what not to do. When I was done, I happened to have a list of 13 things. I didn't mean to sit down and write the 13 things mentally strong people don't do. It was really just a letter to myself. And I would read over that letter uh, as often as I needed to, to stay strong. And then I thought, well, if this is helpful to me, maybe it would help somebody else. So I published it online, sort of on a whim. And that went viral. It got read by 50 million people and therefore changed the course of my career. But I thought it was just really important to talk to people about, hey, if you want to get better, if you want to go through tough times, it's about working smarter and not just harder. Don't do these certain things. And then all of your good habits will be much more effective. Uh, you've demonstrated an amazing amount of resilience because most people don't lose their parents, uh, their spouse, and, and a bunch of other loved ones until they're late 40s, uh, 50s. And the, the normal course of human progress is you spend your 20s and early 30s going to a wedding every weekend, right? And then after that, it comes down, then it's baby showers <laughs> for the next you know, 10, 15 years and school events and all that sort of stuff. And then there's a few divorce parties scattered around there. And then it's you know, the 50, 55, 60 plus, you start realizing, oh my God, like, like people, I've lost my parents. I've lost, you know, potentially um, a loved one. Uh, but then it comes down to, okay, now I'm 70 and, you know, I've seen several funerals at this point and you kind of get good at it. But you did all that before you were 30. So you basically did your, your older person stuff. And in my case, I had most of the diseases of aging before I was 30 that I had the pleasure of overcoming. Uh, but you learned so much wisdom there. But what you did that was different is you said, all right, here's these 13 things. And because you got to practice three times, um, got to not being a very positive way of putting it, but, right. you know, um, let's say that that was the position you were in. Um, what are, what are those 13 things? I mean, give me a couple of those things. I'm sure half the people listening saw the blog post when it first came out, but just kind of walk me through what, what is it? So number one on the list is that mentally strong people don't feel sorry for themselves. That's because that's where I was when I was writing this letter. I was in the midst of hosting a pity party. So that ended up as number one on the list. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Another one's don't give away your power, which is really about when you say things like, you know, my boss makes me work late or my mother-in-law makes me feel bad about myself. Nobody makes you do those things. So taking back your power is about acknowledging that you're in control of your time. You're in control of how you think, how you feel, how you behave. Another one's about not resenting other people's success. In today's world, it's so easy to look around and think other people are doing better or that somehow other people are taking away things from you, whether it's money or that they have more fame, more fortune, more good luck, and that somehow they're they're robbing you. So really, the whole list is sort of these things that we all do sometimes. It's not a list of, yeah, I do that or no, I don't. I guarantee we've all done these things at least a few times in our life, but it's also things that we can choose to give up and that if you once you recognize them, you can't unsee them and you can start to recognize points in your life where you do them and then you make a conscious decision of how do I stop doing that? Yeah, feelings are not generally subject to logic. Like We don't really, mm -hmm. oh, I, I had a thought and then I had a feeling about it. Usually you have a feeling uh, and then you make up uh, the I'm 
you know, I'm feeling sorry for myself sort of thing. How would someone, and I'm asking you, not just as the author of, of the 13 things mentally strong XYZs don't do, but just as a psychology professor, someone who's studied this a lot and someone who's lived through it, how do you do that little mental trick of saying, okay, I'm feeling sorrow, <laughs> but now I'm not feeling sorry for myself? Because a lot of people get stuck there. Yeah. And so I think it's super important to recognize, all right, feeling bad can be healing. If you're grieving, you're going through tough times and you feel sad, absolutely healthy. But it crosses over that line when you start to think, my life is worse than everybody else's. Nobody understands my problems. When you start to fall into the category of hopeless and helpless, and for every solution that you try to elicit from other people, then you find 101 problems, 101 reasons why it won't work. That's when you get stuck in that trap of thinking nothing's going to help. There's nothing I can do about this. And sometimes it becomes an excuse. I'm going to sit around this weekend and not go anywhere. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit here and sort of wallow in my misery. That's when it becomes a problem. Okay. Uh, that, that makes sense. And it's, uh, it, it's a lifelong skill. And when you just, you practice early, uh, do you find that the best way to know when you're having a pity party? Cause you probably don't know it, at least when you start it, like it feels real. Is it, is it friends? Is it family? Is it a therapist? Like what's, what's the early warning system for the fact that you're, you've fallen into self-pity and you didn't notice? I think when you start to recognize, okay, uh, there's absolutely nothing I can do to make myself feel better. There's nothing I can do to make my situation better. There's nothing I can do to contribute to the world to make the world better. Because some problems can't be solved. If you have a loved one with a with a terminal illness, you can't fix it. But you can say, well, what what are my options? Do I what could I do to make myself feel better? How could I take care of myself? How can I help my loved ones during this time? But when you're hosting a pity party, is when you think, oh, there's nothing I can do. This is terrible, horrible, and awful, and my life is ruined. So. And sometimes your friends and family are the ones who can point it out. Maybe they're trying to offer you solutions. Maybe they're trying to say, what if you tried this? And for every time they offer that, you come up with a reason why it won't work. You start thinking nobody understands, nobody cares. I think a lot of that uh, terminal thinking when you start thinking that things are always horrible, things are never going to get better, always and never are, are some pretty good clues. Or when you're thinking nobody understands or nobody else has ever experienced this, those are all red flags that you're sort of exaggerating how bad your misfortune is. Um, Byron Katie's uh, book, The Work, and she was on the show recently. Uh, she has a practice of asking herself, is this true? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, a lot of your self-pity probably isn't true. Any of those right. things you just said, all of those are just a simple fact-based thing. They're not true, but man, they, they sure feel true, which is uh, which is the challenge you know, of just you know, overcoming how, how, do we, how do we solve that, okay? You also talk about how people who are mentally strong, they don't fear taking calculated risks. So how do you know that you calculated your risk right? Well, I say this as someone who just did like the, the world's first, you know, six, six hands, total body stem cell makeover with four hours of, you know, having needles put everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. I don't, I thought I'd calculated that risk pretty well. It seems like it turned out, but I, I don't know if I did it right. So how do, how do mentally strong people know they did it right? So, you know, I think part of it is just being more aware. We take risks every day and we don't even think about it. And when we look at how we handle risk, it's kind of crazy. So if we take the same risk every day, after a while, it doesn't seem risky. Take driving a car, for example. We, yeah. Most of us get behind the wheel and drive a car. You probably even speed sometimes and don't really think about it. And yet the things that scare us are bizarre. So it's scary to maybe take the stage in front of a group of people, or some people are terrified of flying. So a lot of our risks aren't based on any type of logic. It's just based on how we feel. 
So just recognizing how do your emotions affect your decisions? Well, when you're really excited about something, you'll overlook the risks. You'll underestimate how rough things could be. So if you're super excited about an opportunity to make a lot of money, you might think, well, nothing bad will happen. And you jump in and just take it and you become on the impulsive end of the spectrum. That's why some people fall for get rich quick schemes, because they're so excited about the possibility of, of getting all this money. But on the other end, sometimes when we're when we're already anxious about something else, maybe you're nervous about something that happened at home and you go to work and you have an opportunity to take a risk, your anxiety will spill over from home into work and you'll think, no, I can't possibly take this risk at work, whether it's applying for a promotion or volunteering to be on a committee. So part of it's just becoming more aware of your emotions, recognizing how do my emotions affect this? And then to say, well, what's the logic of this risk? And did you really look at the potential benefits, the pros, the cons, and did you evaluate it? Or did you just sort of go with your your gut and think, I'll just do this without really putting any thought into it? Oh, all right. That's, that's strong advice. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, you went on uh, from talking about what middle strong people don't do, and you got into parenting. Um, do you have kids? So I was a foster parent for most oh, of wow. my adult life, right? It was oh. one of the from the time I was like a little kid, I was like, ah, oh, someday I'm going to be a foster parent. And um, so as soon as I was in graduate school, uh, my first husband and I became foster parents. And I had kids between the ages of four all the way up until 17. And after I was widowed, I decided I'll do this as a single woman. And then when I got remarried, um, my second husband was on board. So for most of my life, I had um, therapeutic foster kids. I like the ones who were sort of been kicked out of every place they'd ever been, the ones that were... Wow. Uh, considered somewhat unadoptable. My goal was to say, how do I make it so that these kids can can be adopted before they turn 18? It's something I'm super passionate about. I've taken a break now that I live on a boat and I'm not home very often. But um, yeah, so to answer your question, I don't have biological kids, but for most of my adult life, I've had foster kids. Wow. Well, thank you for that. Uh, you're uh, you're changing some lives in a in a really profound way, uh, just on an individual basis with with doing something that requires that level of energy and care. Mm-hmm. And that probably would be the best possible background <laughs> to write a book <laughs> on what 13 mentally strong uh, parents don't, wait, what was it? 13 things mentally strong parents don't do. And uh, because you actually had a sample size of kids saying, okay, what, what happened here? You know, what, what didn't happen? Abandonment, all that stuff. So you dug in on that and, and your list is really strong there as a parent of two kids uh, who's never been a foster parent. Uh, I got to say, uh, this is a fantastic list. And I wanted to call out a couple things from th- from things mentally strong parents don't do. One of them is uh, you talk about making their children the center of the universe. Why did that make the list? So it's one that I've seen you know, a lot in my therapy office, but I hear a lot about too. And people will say, you know, your kids should be your everything. Your kids should... Uh, you, your entire world should revolve around your kids. But we're seeing the consequences of that. Kids who think, kids who grow up with their parents' entire universe is revolving around them, grow up to think the entire world revolves around them. And that doesn't mean that your kids shouldn't be a top priority in your life, but it means that, that you can set limits, you can say no, you don't have to do the things your kids want to do. I would see it in my therapy office all the time. Parents would come in and they have this kid and the child just has never really dealt with a lot of things in life because the parents were willing to do whatever the child wanted to do 24 seven, whether they were traveling the country to go to sporting events just for their child, or they were spoiling them with everything they could afford. And there, 
had the best of intentions, but at the same time, they were raising this child who just wasn't going to have the skills that they needed to deal with the fact that their future boss, their future mate, their future uh, friends that they were going to have just weren't going to be able to meet these kind of demands. I, I had one uh, employee the first time, uh, first time having a job out of school. And uh, this person said, you know, I'm, I'm going to show up to this thing. And it was a thing that had been planned for a long time. It was an important attendee. And then the evening before, it's like, oh, uh, I'm not going to show up. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's out of integrity. Uh, you know, it's one of the things where at this company, we do what we say we're going to do. <laughs> and it's not okay to flake uh, unless we're talking about a family emergency. And well, the, the emergency was a hot date as far as I can tell. <laughs> Uh, and I said, when, it, when I said it's out of integrity, they looked at me and said, it's out of integrity for you, but it's not out of integrity for me. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> like, what do you do with that? Yeah. I don't even know. But I, I, I was asking myself, all right, is this that being the center of the universe? Because integrity isn't about you or me. It's about do people do what they say they're going to do? And uh, uh, it was, it, it was, that's what actually made that, that rule pop out or that uh, whatever piece of advice pop out. What are some other things that you're seeing parents do today that maybe they didn't do 25 years ago? Uh, yeah, so certainly that's one of them. 25 years ago, nobody was making their uh, kid the center of the universe or very few parents. But another one is uh, really parents are taking responsibility for the way that their kids feel. When kids are bored, we cheer them up. When they're, or we entertain them. When they're bored or when they're sad, we cheer them up. When they... Uh, you know, get overstimulated, we calm them down. When they're upset, we we do whatever we can to, to make things right. And I think for a lot of parents, they have guilt about you know, being working parents or they have guilt or they worry that if their child isn't happy all the time, that somehow they're doing something wrong. And we're not giving kids the skills that they need. And as a college professor, I see this firsthand, but there's studies that when they surveyed college students and said, were you ready for college? Most of them said academically, I was 100% ready for life after high school. But then when they say, well, uh, what about emotionally? Almost all of them say, no, I don't have the skills to be lonely, to be sad, to be upset. I don't know how to deal with those things on my own. In fact, that was the one skill that college students say that they wish that their parents and teachers had spent more time working on with them. Was and, actually being alone? And Well, just being having emotional skills so that you could handle right. being alone. And... And so I think it's super important that uh, as parents, we give kids the coping skills that they need. And I think part of it's electronics, too. When I was a kid, if I was in the backseat of the car and it was boring, I just had to look out the window. Well, now you see kids and they've got these handheld devices and they don't know what it's like to be bored. Or when they're kind of lonely, they just turn on their smartphones and they're chatting with people. And so it really takes away a lot of opportunities to deal with real life emotions when they're constantly on their digital devices. Uh, so they just need to feel their emotions. It's funny, I sat down with my daughter once, she was probably four or something, it was a while back, uh, and she's like, I don't know what's going on, there's, like, it, and finally, we talked about it, I was like, oh, you're feeling an emotion. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, really? I'm like, yeah, and I, it was an angst, or I, I don't remember what, exactly what it was, um, but, but finally, she just, like, started wailing, and it was like, oh, I, I feel much better. I said, oh, can you draw a picture of it? And she, like, draws this, like, red ball or something. I'm like, great. And then she went off and played. And it was so weird because I wasn't necessarily raised that way. You know? Right. It, but it, it, he was puzzled by this weird thing that was happening to her. Because uh, whatever that was, she'd never felt it or never noticed it before. Uh, but it would have been pretty easy to, like, hey, let's have some ice cream. And I'm, right. I'm grateful I didn't do that. 
what okay if your parents didn't uh, didn't let you feel your emotions let's say okay so now you're an adult or you know young adult or even an old adult you're like oh there's emotions in there is there any remedial action that you should do to be more functional that way do, i mean is that going back to the 13 things mentally resilient people do well you know i think a lot of us weren't right in my in my house we didn't really sit around and talk about our feelings or emotion words or anything like that and i think it's something we're becoming more aware of but a lot of people just never dealt with that so i think when you become an adult a lot of those people end up in my therapy office just because now they're like what do i do with this but it's never too late part of it i think the very first thing is just label it and when I talk to adults, I'll say, name as many emotions as you can. They usually come up with about four, right? We have happy, sad, mad, <laughs> angry, maybe. And after that, you think, gosh, we talk so much about emotional intelligence, yet I've got a vocabulary of about four feeling words. And so I think sometimes just Google a list of emotions and maybe you hang it up on your wall and just look at it and sometimes say, gosh, how am I feeling today? And put a name to it. And that takes a lot of the sting out of it, but helps you become better at understanding how do I feel today and how might my emotions be clouding my judgment or affecting my decisions or fueling my behavior. And it just really helps you to become more aware. So that's just one super easy thing you can do to just start becoming more aware of how you feel. And that is actually really good advice. Uh, I, I work with a, a list of emotions uh, at 40 Years of Zen, the neuroscience thing that I do for personal development. But I've never thought of printing that list out and putting it on the walls. So I'll I'll do a blog vote, a blog post uh, for people with a, a list of emotions, and it's actually a really cool idea. I'm gonna do it with my kids. Like, which one of those do you have? Um, what a what a cool idea! Thank you for that. Sure. Let's talk about women. Uh, one of my favorite topics. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, your latest book was Thirteen Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. What made you decide to write a book targeted specifically uh, for women versus a book about people? Well, you know, my books have really been uh, out of the first book. I got so many questions from parents about how do I raise mentally strong kids that the parenting book was born. And when the parenting book came out, I had a lot of questions from moms in particular saying, okay, but how do I raise a strong daughter? Or how do I, how to, as a working mom, how do I go ahead and be, a, what's it look like to be strong? And I thought, you know, we have so many examples of strength and mentally strong people out there, but a lot of them tend to be men. We look at Navy SEALs. We look at a lot yeah. of male elite athletes. I thought, you know, we need examples of what does it look like to be a mentally strong woman? And does it look different than men? And how, how might we have those role models for girls who are growing up to say, okay, this is what it looks like. This is how it feels to be a mentally strong woman. This is what you can do. So I just really wanted to. And I think in looking back, probably a lot of the examples in my people book are men. <laughs> and it was something when I wrote the book, I probably, you know, I know there are plenty of women in there, but I suspect I've never, haven't done the math on how many men compared to women. But I thought, you know, I just think there probably aren't nearly as many examples that we're talking about. They're out there, but a lot of the men get the limelight because when we think about strength, we talk so much about physical strength and these physical challenges and men who can submit themselves to to all the rigors of, say, becoming a Navy SEAL, that we talk about that rather than what does it look like to be a woman who's mentally strong? Uh, all I know is uh, if you want to see how mentally strong women are, uh, just look at the amount of sleep deprivation uh, that happens after you have a baby. In exactly. <laughs> if you can wake up in the morning after that, that's mentally strong. Right. Uh, and even today, uh, women still do somewhere around 70% of the housework, right. uh, which is lower than it was historically, but it's still not uh, anywhere close to, to parity. Uh, so also we have more women working than ever before. So let's see, more work, 
um, and a greater share of what goes on, you know, operating a household. Um, that takes mental strength. Um, that's not even counting if you have kids. Uh, so right. yeah, the, just the, the idea of not having mental strength there just doesn't, it flies in the face of the facts, but we don't oftentimes recognize that. So right. I, I buy your, your perspective there. And question about your list of 13 things for women specifically. Is this based on uh, like gender-based social constructs or is this more around research and science say this is what women do? Uh, is, is this like, is this built in or is this what we learned? You know, I think uh, a lot of it has to do with what we have learned, you know, as women. And I, But I think it's so – a lot of the things are just so uh, – just become so common in society that we don't even necessarily recognize them. The more that I was researching, the more I was thinking about it, the more I would find, you know, just from the way that we start raising girls a little bit differently when they're born, from how teachers treat girls in the classroom as compared to boys – and a lot of it's just become so ingrained that I think we've sort of accepted it and we don't necessarily even notice it. But I wanted to bring those things to light and talk about as women, how do you, how does that affect you? How do you get caught up in these bad habits? And then how do you give them up? Uh, so I, I guess I could sum that up as we're, we're not sure, but a lot of it is learned. I'll put it I that think way. so. I think yeah. so. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite one of the 13 uh, uh, things that you wrote for women? That mentally strong women don't downplay their success. Ah. Because I find that, you know, not to say that men are right and women are wrong, but we know when it comes to, say, talking about our skills, about um, our achievements, men tend to go to one end of the spectrum. They're much more boisterous. They talk about all their skills, even when they have the same amount of experience as women do. Men tend to say brag a lot more. Women, on the other hand, downplay. I, I'm feeling stereotyped right now. Just- <laughs> So there's a study on LinkedIn (laughs) where they looked at men versus women and ones who had the exact number of years of experience and they'd ask them about their skills. And the list for men was so much longer than the list that women would have. And and I think, uh, you know, as women, we don't want to sound arrogant. We don't want to be impolite. We don't want to look narcissistic. And so, but it's to our own detriment sometimes that we will minimize uh, our success because we don't want anybody else to feel bad. And one of the ways that, you know, just a simple way to look at it is how do women respond to compliments? I know a lot of men do this too, but women in particular, when they're complimented, they often will minimize it and say, well, oh, it's no big deal. Or we give a compliment back and say, no, you're amazing. Or we tend to sort of shrug it off and we think, you know, like, oh, this old shirt, I bought it for $10 or something like that. Do do you mean like being a guru? And Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Caught you. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But rather than, well, you know, and this, uh, I always say my lists, I come by them all honestly, including this one, but to to just say thank you when somebody compliments me is uncomfortable, but I've practiced it. And after a while, I get more used to it. But just in looking at how women tend to respond to compliments, it's the statistics are something like, especially when women are complimented by other women, 80% of the time, they'll deflect it, they'll minimize it, they'll do something because it's just so uncomfortable. But it's okay to acknowledge your success. It doesn't mean that you're bragging if you just simply say thank you when somebody else acknowledges you. And it's okay to talk about your achievements. And it's okay to say, gosh, I'm I'm proud that I put in a lot of hard work and, and here's what came of it. It's funny that uh, saying thank you thing didn't uh, come naturally to me either. And I work with a variety of advisors, mentors, uh, people way older than me uh, who therefore have more arrows in their backs than I do. <laughs> and uh, 
energy workers and you know anyone else I find who has unusual skills that they'd like to share with me. And uh, one of them was like, Dave, you know, when when people compliment you or or say thanks or whatever, you know, you got to say thanks. I'm like, okay, I, I, I can do that. Uh, and they're like, but you're not saying it right. I'm like, what what do you mean? Like, there's something that that you're supposed to do when when you say thank you for a compliment. You have to actually like energetically receive the compliment. <laughs> so it's one thing to kind of have like a fake smile and go thank you. Uh, you know, can we go next? Another thing going thank you and actually like feeling the thanks. Yes. And I've never talked about this on the air, but I actually went through a like a, a probably like a six month practice of reminding myself every time people say thanks to like oh thank you and to actually like hear it and then feel the sensation of thanks if there's even a word for that uh, and it was great advice but it doesn't really make a lot of rational sense but when people tell you thanks or they compliment you uh, and you do that they can feel that their compliment had an impact and then they feel better about it yes and and you probably get this all the time you walk. You know, somewhere people recognize you, like, oh, thank you for your book. It changed my life. And then you go, oh, you know, thanks. And you have to receive that, right? And I, I have the similar experiences quite a lot, which I'm really grateful for. But it was actually work to learn how to do that right. So I, I love that you put this in your book because receiving a compliment, there's a skill to that. And I mean, your parents don't teach you that. No one teaches you that. Right. Right. And I think there's so much focus on humility. And so I love that you said that about receiving it and, and to help yourself try to at least feel it on the inside, too, because there is a big difference in just saying thanks and you keep walking versus, hey, thank you for, for acknowledging that. And then to take a moment and, and really feel it and think, OK, and it's uncomfortable. It's so bizarre that it the, is. <laughs> the words that are supposed to make you feel good feel so cringeworthy sometimes. Uh, but, you know, I think after a while you get more used to it and it becomes more comfortable just being able to say thank you. Yeah, you're making me uh, uh, question or ask myself, how can I teach my kids that skill? That's a that's a tough one. Do you have any ideas? Yeah. Oh, so, you know, that line between you want to raise humble kids, but on the other hand, you, do, you want them to, to be polite and to receive a compliment. And so right. I think just practicing receiving it when they... Uh, get a gift if you write a thank you note, not just to go through the motions of thanks for that gift, but to really say, you know, how do you, that person took time, they were shopping for you, what do you want to say? Or when somebody compliments them on on how they played in the game or how they scored on, on a test or for being a nice kid, how do you just take a moment and say, you know, thank you for saying that to me. And then I think you can have a conversation with them afterward. How'd you feel when that person said that? And how'd you really feel? Because kids might say, good. Well, did you really feel good? Does that ever make you uncomfortable? So I think just about starting those conversations and noticing how they respond to compliments and then for you to be a good role model and say, this is how I'm going to respond when people say nice things to me too. All right. I'm, I'll work on that with my kids. You have something else in here that stands out in your book for Emotionally Strong Women. And you say, they don't fear breaking the rules. Now, I've got a son and a daughter. And my son breaks rules, <laughs> uh, and I'm completely cool with that. My daughter does sometimes, but quite often the conversation comes like, well, that's not allowed at school. And we have this conversation. It's like, well, you know, there are lots of rules, more rules than you could ever really follow. And you got to decide, is it worth breaking that rule? Because there will be consequences if you get caught, but are the consequences worth it? And you know, one example, their school, they have this ridiculous rule. You're not allowed to make snowballs. I'm like, come on, it barely ever snows. If there's, How could you not have snowballs at a school? Like, that's just sick and wrong. And if you're listening, uh, Waldorf school people, come on, like lighten up. 
Um, they should say, you're not allowed to put a rock bigger than so amount in the snowball and throw it at someone you don't like. Okay, that, that's at least where I grew up. Uh, but uh, that idea of breaking it, it just seems like it's harder for her to break rules. And trust me, I, I'm the guy who's like, I'm going to live longer than I'm supposed to. I'll break a few rules. And uh, like I live that, I, I'd probably break more rules than I should. And uh, at least I have historically, especially as a child. But I see the difference in my kids. And I, I got to wonder, is, is she getting it from her friends? She's not getting it at home. Or is this one of those gender things? Do you have any perspective on that? Like, How, how do women learn or how do we teach young women or children it's okay to break the rules. So, you know, when they have done studies on this in schools, they found that American teachers are much more lenient when it comes to boys who break the rules because we have this oh, sort really? of boys will be boys mentality. Other cultures that don't have that, boys and girls tend to act the same. The boys are better behaved, more in line with, with what we see from the girls. But it seems to be something I think a lot of kids pick up in school because teachers have that idea of boys are going to be more hyperactive, that they're going to break more rules, they're going to be more impulsive, which isn't necessarily true. If we raise them the same, according to other cultures, kids will act the same. So I think that we're giving them just really subtle messages in society of that girls need to be polite, you should be well-behaved, you should be well-mannered, we praise girls more for using their manners, that sort of a thing, and then look the other way when the boys are you know, breaking their table manners, burping at the table or something, and we laugh at it, versus when the little girls do that stuff, we tell them that's impolite. So you know, I think even if they're not getting that message at home, I'm not surprised that there's other places that they probably are picking up on that. So how do adult women who read your book become comfortable breaking rules? So I think sort of like the question you said you ask your kids is recognizing, well, what rules are okay to break? And Like speeding. Right. Maybe you go five miles over the, over the limit, but... <laughs> Not that I ever have, but right. I know some people do. Of course. <laughs> but you know, and when I was really looking at this too, I was thinking about women in history who've broken the rules and they sort of become trailblazers. At first, we don't like them, but then after a while, we think, oh yeah. And one of my examples in this chapter was Catherine Switzer, who was the first woman to... Run a, run a marathon. And this was back in the late 60s, we thought women physically couldn't run a marathon. And so she just happened to sign up, she ran the marathon, and, and a lot of people weren't happy with her, but she didn't ask permission, she just went out and did it. And I think there's still things in our society that we think women can't do. And, and probably someday a woman will break the rule and we think, oh, we could, and we just were tolerant of this for, for too long. So I think for women to just recognize, are there rules that I follow? Maybe it's an unofficial, unwritten rule, sort of these societal things, these gender norms that we do. Could I do things differently? Why do I do this? Why do a lot of women say, let their husbands drive the car? Why do the women do the dishes a lot of women, as you say, so many women do the housework, that kind of stuff. And so I think it's just about recognizing what you do, why you do it, and think, is this a rule that's worth breaking? What are the consequences? And how might I do things differently? If you were to turn this around and write a book for men about uh, things that were specific for men, I know you may be thinking about doing that. Would there Are there rules that you would change of this list of 13? Yeah. So some of the men that have read this book have said, gosh, this all applies to me. And I'm glad that men find value in it too. But I tried to find things that specifically uh, spoke about women, about, you know, and that I could back up with research that affects women more. But when it comes to men, whenever I have this conversation, of course, the subject of toxic masculinity comes up where men feel like, you know, they can't talk to their friends about their emotions, that there's certain things that men have to do. So I think it would be a different list, but I think it would be um, similar in terms of, you know, vulnerability and emotions and the way that, that men think that they have to act uh, in public and different gender norms that men deal with that women don't necessarily 
have to experience. The third rule in in your book for women is they don't see vulnerability as a weakness. And you know, Lewis Howes is a, is a good friend who's you know, written about you know, the mask of masculinity. And uh, about five days ago, I had Nick Foles, the Super Bowl MVP champion, uh, on stage with me uh, at a talk I was giving. And he was talking about what happens in the locker room. Uh, he's you know Super Bowl MVP and just a, a really great, humble human being. And he said, no one talks about this, but a lot of the guys before they got on the field, they're literally throwing up. Like they have panic <laughs> attacks. <laughs> they're, they're so worried and so worked up. But of course, no one's ever going to talk about it. No one's ever going to show up. So you know, this is how I manage my stress. Uh, because every time you go out there, like you just don't know. And there's you know 100,000 people watching you and all this stuff. And and so I was just kind of amazed to hear that because you hear this maybe from you know SWAT team people and and I've had some people on who've who've talked about that um, just the innate stress responses but the fact that they don't talk about it so I, I kind of feel like women are allowed in today's uh, culture just to be more vulnerable than men but you're saying even so you know, women don't see that vulnerability as a weakness. And it seems like that that is an area where you know, guys probably have more of an issue with that. It's certainly something that I, I worked through uh, in my early 30s around just being comfortable being vulnerable uh, because that was certainly not something that was ever acceptable, uh, you know, where, where I went to school anyway. They, they'd beat you up if you were vulnerable. Right. And, you know, I find for women, um, when I was really writing that chapter, a lot of it had to do with work. You know, if women are emotional as a leader, then often they get to be called crazy. Whereas if a man expresses emotion, sometimes we'll think, wow, he's a really good leader or he's passionate about this. And so uh, I think for women, there's a game face that they have to put on, but it's in a different way. Whereas women, you know, behind closed doors with their female friends, they can talk about, gosh, I'm really anxious. I'm nervous. I'm sad. And then men don't, a lot of men say, I don't have that opportunity. I don't have anybody in the world that I could really express my feelings to and feel like it's okay to do that. Uh, so that's, that's something that I think is shifting. And sometimes it's just, you know, having really healthy friendships is, yes. uh, is a really part of that. And, uh, there are a lot of guys, uh, going back to your book on kids, uh, where you have kids and you end up you know, for oh, only 18 years uh, not really putting time into friendships because you're putting so much energy making your kids the center of the universe. And it happens for, for men and women. Yes. Uh, but at least the, the studies that I've seen, probably not nearly as many as you as a professor of uh, psychology, but um, are that, that women tend to have uh, better friendships during that time than guys do because guys are quite often... Um, just really career focused and you know, women, especially when you have young kids, you tend to spend time with other people who have young kids. So you get some you know, mommy social time, right? Uh, whereas um, guys oftentimes don't. So maybe, maybe that's one that'd be in there. Well, I, I think that you've done a, a pretty profound job of, of breaking down you know, this huge number of things uh, into very digestible, uh, digestible bites in, in all three of your books that really, uh, that really stand out. And I got to ask you now, if you had only one thing that would apply to all of those audiences, the single most important thing that mentally strong people don't do, what would it be? Um, I would say that mentally strong people don't expect immediate results. I think in today's okay. world, you know, of instant gratification, we want things so fast, but yet change. If you're going to change yourself, you're going to change your life. It takes time. And to know that progress doesn't always come in a straight line. Sometimes things get a little worse before they tend to get better, but that doesn't mean you should quit. You don't give up. You just keep going and know that it's not going to happen overnight. So it comes down to patience and resilience and just continuing to push. 
Yes. Uh, as long as you're not following that one other rule you have, which is they don't keep doing the same thing over and over that doesn't work. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a problem with advice. It's always easy to generalize, except mm -hmm. it's not easy to generalize the way you have where you've made some really clear rules with, with good stories. So I think you've done a, a fantastic, fantastic job of summarizing learnings that life brought your way early on and that you've studied uh, professionally and put it into uh, something that's digestible and noteworthy and, and worth sharing. So thank you, for, thank you for writing those three books. I think they're, uh, they're just worth people's time. Oh, thank you. I've got one more question for you that has nothing to do with your work. Uh, throughout the history of Bulletproof Radio, the first about 600 or so episodes, I asked people this question, you know, three pieces of advice for people who want to perform better at everything as human beings, which would include parenting and being a man or a woman or anything else. But I published Game Changers based on that work uh, that just came out recently, same publisher as you. And now I'm working on my next book, which is an anti-aging book. So for the last 20 years, I run an anti-aging nonprofit research group, and I'm I'm out there in terms of rules I want to break around aging. And I started to ask everyone who comes on the show uh, this question. How long do you want to live? I think, so I'm going to be 40 this year. So if I could live to be 140, if I had 100 more good years left, I would be ecstatic. <laughs> All right. Look at you. I, I love that answer. Uh, now, why do you think that might be possible? My hope would be that uh, between now, so if I'm going to be 40 and then, you know, and so I guess my average lifespan would be what, early 80s, typically, yeah, if we looked early at, to at mid 80s, now. yeah. So, you know, which would then say my life is half over. But if I were to think about the medical advances we've made in, in the first 40 years of my life, my hope would be that in the next 40 years, we'll come up with some that will extend my life, things that will... <laughs> figure out how do you cure certain things? How do you prevent certain illnesses? How do you deal with certain things? Because um, I, I wouldn't want to live to be 140 if I you know, get to Alzheimer's at age 80 and I don't remember the last 60 years of my life. But right. I want to live to be to be healthy. So that would be my hope as we find some ways to keep us healthy and to uh, help me to be have a better quality of life until 140, I think would be amazing. I I love it, and you actually followed uh, some of your uh, some of your own uh, some of your own knowledge there. You didn't let self doubt stop you from reaching your goal. Well, you haven't made it to one forty, but at <laughs> least you can do it. And that thing about uh, taking risks and uh, you know looking at at risk and reward, one of the other the other rules you have in there. Um, you're also doing that. It's like, are you allowed to break the rules? And, and by the way, thank you for just saying, you know, I'm pretty sure medicine's going to do something in the next hundred <laughs> years that's useful. I, I kind of agree with you there, but. It drives me nuts when people have that picture of old age. Oh, when I'm 80, I'm going to be, you know, tubes and monitors and I won't right. know my own name. And, and you know, it's like, that's no, not how it's supposed to be. So I, I love it that you're almost 40. Um, I I just turned 46 last last year. And for me, I was celebrating my 25th percent birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> my goal is 180. I'm just, I'm still young and I'm just going to keep it that way. So I, I love hearing that. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking about what your picture of old age is, change it. Uh, it won't be that way when you're old. And if you're already old, it's already not that way if you know the right stuff. And I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about that. And by the way, if you're going to live for 140 years like Amy here or 180 or more like me, you might want to look at these 13 things 
that mentally strong people do. You might want to start doing that now because if you do that for another 100 years, uh, like Amy's going to, the return on investment and the reduction in suffering in your life from that is pretty big. Uh, so you're going to have to learn these things if you live that long. You just mm. do it earlier because someone told me this when I was 20, it would have been so much easier. Right. <laughs> All right, Amy, thank you uh, for your work. People can find your books all over the place. And uh, pretty much you can just go out and you can Google for 13 Things Mentally Strong and you will find all three of your books. One for people, one for parents, and one for women. They're all different and they're all worth reading. Uh, even if you're not a woman, uh, you're gonna find some uh, some nuggets in there. Thanks, Amy. Thank you, Dave. If you'd like today's episode with Amy, you know what to do. Go out there and pick up a copy of one of her books and read it. And if you like it, take the time to leave a review because authors uh, like Amy and like me, uh, frankly, we appreciate the heck out of that. We actually see those things and it lets us know whether our books are worth your time because one of the worst things you can do as an author is write a book that wasn't worth anyone's time. And so we track those things, just know, did we do it right? So when our next book comes out, we can do it even better. So it's a really good way for you to express gratitude and say thanks. And it's a good way for Amy and me to practice our receivership of your thanks, like we talked about in the show today. So do leave reviews for any book you read, not, not just because it helps other people find the book, but because us authors, we care and we notice it. So 13 things, Google that, leave a review, and game changers, Google that, leave a review. You'll become a better human being, it's guaranteed. Have an awesome day. There you go. How'd you like that? The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.